Um, I'm so honored to get to be here with all of you tonight. I was praying with the Lord a couple weeks ago what he wanted me to preach on, and the word that he gave me that kind of introduced the rest of the thoughts that he ended up flowing out of me was bricklayer. And I was like, I don't know what that really means or who needs to hear that, but I'll run with it. And I have a brick in my room, so that'll be perfect. So I might get a little nerdy tonight, caution. I love the Bible, and I dig in the weeds deep. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to grab your note materials. Uh, And if you're not, then that's just great too. Open your ears and receive from the Lord, I pray. With that said, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 11. Starting at verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Lord, we come to you uh, with our hearts open, trusting that you want to speak, and we are your children who long to listen. As we worshiped, Lord, may your spirit of revelation and wisdom guide us into a full revelation of your identity. And in that, Lord, a full revelation of our identity. We adore you. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. All right. Now imagine with me for a moment that you are a farmer in Babylon, roughly 5,000 years ago. (laughs) probably hard to imagine. Uh, In this setting, you love your farm. You were raised on your farm. You know the dirt so well. You can look at the clouds and decide what the weather's going to be. You know where the sun is and what time of day it is. That's your craft. But there's this new technology that's on the scene, the brick. All of a sudden, human ingenuity has figured out how to compile materials together to create a sturdy building block with which we can build buildings that we've never built before. And you are recruited against your will from your farm to be a bricklayer. Because in Babylon, it really wasn't up to you what you did. It was up to the king. It was up to your masters. I think our stories shape the way that we live. And the Babylonian creation story, in case you don't know it, says a few things that might really interest us. It's called the Enuma Elish 
That's the Babylonian creation story. And if you don't know, their god is a guy named Marduk. I don't know. It doesn't sound very appealing to me already. So uh, let me just roll through the spark notes of the Enuma Elish for you. If you're a Babylonian farmer turned bricklayer, this is what you believe about the universe. There was a chaos dragon swirling in the ocean named Tamat, Tiamat, Tiamat, and Marduk, Tiamat's grandson, gets in a war with her and these vicious monsters, and they're fighting, and there's just this chaotic, scary war of the gods, and they're all family, and it's all breeded in jealousy and spite and revenge. This is the setting of the Babylonian creation story. Also, if you want to be flipping the slides with me as I speak, I'm probably not going to cue you that well. Yes, on the right, that's Marduk. And on the left, there's Tiamat, the chaos dragon of the sea. And in a lot of stories where this is told, Marduk blows Tiamat's mouth open with the wind and then shoves this trident spear into her and cuts her in half. And then he takes half of her and throws it in the heavens and it becomes the sky. And then the other half, he lays on the ground and it becomes the earth. And that's how the skies and the earth were made, everyone, for the Babylonians. Vicious, brutal. Later in this same story, there's another god named Ea. It's just E-A, Ea. He's a friend of Marduk's, and they say, hey, since Tiamat is finally destroyed and the world is being set up, I'm tired of working for my food. So we should create beings that do the work we want for us. Marduk is like, that's a great idea. So he kills another god that they didn't like named Kingu, and then takes that god's blood and pours it on the dirt, and they make humans out of Kingu's blood and the dirt, and they create humans to be their slaves. This is actually what it says. Ea created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. So as a Babylonian farmer turned bricklayer, this is what you believe about what it means to be human. Created for the gods so that they don't have to lift their fingers as much. And you labor under the hot sun to do whatever they want. Hmm. Brutal. This is what I'm going to call tonight the rule of tyranny. It's where our identities are found in what we do, in what we have, in what the world claims is valuable. Who's on the throne in the rule of tyranny? In Babylon... It's the people who wanted to make a name for themselves. Do you remember that in Genesis 11? The people who wanted to make a name for themselves such that they built a tower that would ascend into the heavens so that human brilliance would be exalted to the level of deification. 
That's who's on the throne in this narrative. The rule of tyranny. Now, what I'd like to do is contrast that with the lovely story that I would argue we all take for granted that we find in Genesis, where a God, sovereign and magnificent, needs no warfare to tell the darkness that its time is up. Where a God can just speak and celestial beings are woven into the universe. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. A God who cares about work and rest and delight. A God who created humans and said, let's read this together. When he created humans, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. Is there another slide? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We could go a thousand directions with that. But think about the inherent dignity that's woven into the story of humankind that we see in Genesis 1. The image of God, where he, God, says, come and rule alongside me. I've created this beautiful project we call the universe, and I want you to subdue the land with me. I want you to plant things and eat things and make good coffee and good music and celebrations. And, and let's do something beautiful with this project together, God says. Inherently, in the image of God is this idea that all of us not one king on the throne in Babylon, but every human being is worthy of dignity, that you are all rulers with God in this project of creation. Could you imagine what this would have meant as an ancient person? Like you're that Babylonian farmer turned bricklayer and you hear a story like this? Like I would gotta think you'd be liberated Don't you think? We're just on page one, friends. Now I want to turn to page two. <laughs> uh, and let's read this next bit together. This is where, or I'll read it, I guess. That's confusing when I say it that way. But in Genesis 2, this is when God creates Adam says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living person. 
The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. This God, who didn't have to touch anything, oh, actually stay on that previous slide for me before we go into the technical stuff. (laughs) That looks fun, though. We'll get there. Um, This God, who just spoke and black holes, and neutron stars, and all this crazy nonsense in the universe just goes spinning. God doesn't have to touch it. He doesn't have to lift a finger. His authority is so great, his voice does all the creating he needs. And that God stooped down into the dust to make his favorite part of creation. He formed we don't see this in the English, so I'll, I'll give you an insight window into the Hebrew. The word for formed is yatsar, if you want to say yatsar. As a verb, it means to form. As a noun, it means potter, someone who works with clay by profession. So this is God getting down into the dust and forming like a potter. Mankind. And then this other word, I actually didn't know this until prepping for this sermon, but it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The word breathed right there, there are a few different Hebrew options for breathed. The one right here is pronounced nafach. You got to clear your throat for that one. Very rarely used word, and it means to, like, blow, like, exhaust your lungs for the sake of whatever you're blowing onto or into. So this isn't like an easy breath. This is like, it's used in Job to describe blowing out a fire before it spreads too quickly. It's used of a woman who's climbing a staircase that she's breathing in exhaustion, This is the breath that God breathes. He actually gives of his own strength when he's shaping mankind. Isn't that beautiful? And we won't get too deep into the weeds, into the technical stuff, but I discovered when reading this that there's a Hebrew poem right here called a chiasm. If you want to click over to the next screen, I'll just tell you that it's there. I won't explain to you exactly what all of this means, but essentially there's a parallelism that's trying to really emphasize what I just said in the Hebrew. And it's a kind of poem we don't really write in the English very much, so we don't see it. The Bible, in case you aren't aware, is a literary masterpiece. Only God could have made sense of all of this brilliance. So... I would love to unpack it for you, but for time's sake, we'll just leave it at that. And if you want to learn more, just come to a Sunday school class. (laughs) Shameless plug. All right. The rule that God is instilling in his humans in Genesis is what I'd like to call, rather than the rule of tyranny, the rule of stewardship. It's where he actually gives his human beings thrones as long as they remain subservient to his throne. 
the one who sees all and knows all, who is good and is love. And unfortunately, in this whole creation project in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve decide, actually, I don't know if I can trust this God fully. Maybe he's holding out on me. Maybe I can decide what's right and wrong on my own terms. Something interesting to point out is that the snake tempts Eve by saying, eat of the apple and you will become like God. But what did we just talk about? They were. They had the image of God from day one. The tempter was trying to tell them that they weren't what they already were and that they needed to do something to attain it. Does that sound like anybody's story? I mean, convict me, Lord. Seriously. Mm. And so we fall. Adam and Eve fell. And it got really messy really quickly. One of their kids killed another one of their kids. It was tough. They start exploiting God's good creation. There was this flip-flop. And this is a question I want to keep asking. Who is on the throne? The ultimate throne. There are subservient thrones, right? There's the 24 elders that cast their crowns at the feet of the Lamb. They're on thrones. But there's only like one capital T throne. Hmm. Let's take a glance at Egypt. We're skipping quite a few pages. We have a friend in the book of Genesis named Joseph who models really well what it's like to be an image bearer in the world. And he makes Egypt an incredible saving place for the surrounding world in a catastrophic famine. If you don't know his story, you should read it. It's terrific. Highly recommend. But the spark notes is he's beaten up, sold into slavery. He's imprisoned for something he didn't do. And he continues to honor God. And he says, the Lord is with me in every step of his persecution. And his faithfulness ultimately leads him to an exaltation where he has the most authority in all of the kingdom of Egypt, which was the strongest kingdom of its day. And he's interpreting dreams for Pharaoh. And he says, we're going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Let's build some storehouses and get ready. God's given me divine strategy. And because I'm subject to him, I trust what doesn't make sense. Because he knows better than I know. I'm not going to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil where I decide what's right and wrong on my own terms. I'm going to be submitted to God's wisdom. And so they do. And they save the whole surrounding area. People flood to Egypt through those whole seven years of famine. And it's interesting that he had storehouses built because generations later, we're told that when the Pharaoh forgot about Joseph and forgot about the God of Joseph, he's threatened by the people of Israel. They're growing too quickly. They're multiplying and spreading amongst the earth too well. And so he enslaves them to build storehouses 
storage cities. It's the same Hebrew word as what Joseph had done with authority. But also to build these pinnacles of glory like towers of Babel all over again to the heavens where Pharaoh had forgotten who sat on the throne. And so again, the image of God, kings and queens were reduced to bricklayers. Working seven days a week, their whole identity surrounded how many of these they made and then laid and how many new bricklayers they were raising for the next generation. The rule of tyranny, again. Okay, now I'm just curious if we can. I want to see if there's like a pattern in the way that we even live our lives today. So skipping ahead about 3,500 years. Uh, Right now, let's do a little evaluation on us ask ourselves if any of these things resonate. Whether it's the technical, literal version of slavery or some other kind of identification with your craft, I am a bricklayer. Maybe there's something there. Uh, I looked this up and it blew me away. Globally, there's almost 50 million slaves, we think, today. Um, but I would argue that you don't have to be in a cobalt mine or a sweatshop to be in some form of slavery. And that's why we have Jesus. Now, before I get to that gospel moment, I'm really excited about that moment. But before I do, I'm going to read some statistics. One that was just done this just published this past January of 2,000 employed Americans found that nearly 48% considered themselves to be a modern-day workaholic. Like half of the people interviewed as full-time employees called themselves workaholics. And interestingly, only 28% of those people said that they worked hard out of financial necessity. The other people worked hard and they weren't motivated by finances, supposedly. I would argue maybe there's a motivation that's based in a faulty sense of identity. Another study showed that 77% of Americans who work full-time have experienced burnout at some point in their jobs. Do you resonate with that? We thought that the more technology we would create, the less we'd have to work, and somehow it feels like we're more burnt out than any generation in recent history. This blew my mind. According to the Harvard Business School survey conducted like seven months ago, 94% of service professionals put in more than 50 hours of work every week. Hmm. But it's not just an American problem. Uh, in case you aren't aware, you know, we have the nine to five here in the U.S. That classic, like, Dolly Parton song. Working nine to five. You got it? Um, 
In China, they have an equivalent. They call it the 996. Have you ever heard this before? Uh, It's culturally expected of you that you work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Which, if you don't count, like, lunch breaks or whatever they have, which I know are not many, that's 72 hours a week is expected of the average Chinese citizen. Not a uniquely American problem. This is wild. In Japan, a word exists in their vocabulary, karoshi, I think I'm pronouncing that right, that means death by work. And it's actually something that, like, doctors and psychologists are starting to study really dramatically in Japan because they're trying to figure out how is workaholism driving people to their end so consistently in our culture? What have we done wrong? It's a current issue that is it's at the top of research in Japan sociology, Japanese sociology. I'm curious, in our own context... Whether you're in the workplace or you're in school, have you seen a Babylonian complex where it felt like someone was trying to build a tower to the heavens? Maybe it was like financial wealth, prosperity, I want to sit comfortably, or like out of pride or a sense of influence, I want to make a name for myself. I have to grind so that my family can be comfortable and we won't have comfortable until we have a yacht that can go on Lucky Peak and Lake Payette. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Honestly, keeping up with the Joneses is a wild rat race in our culture, isn't it? It reduces us to bricklayers, friends. It does. Whether you're the CEO or the custodian or anywhere in between, and I've been a custodian before, so no shame, it can reduce you to a bricklayer if you let it. You're a slave either way. This is the rule of tyranny. So the question remains who is on the throne? It's funny, it seems to be a habit of society that we like to define ourselves by works, by our achievements. Have you noticed that? Maybe I just sit up thinking about these kinds of things. But Christianity is unique in that it's the only world religion where you're not at all defined by anything that you do in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, you are utterly defined by who God says you are, by the blood of Christ that covers you. Saul went from a murderer to a purified, holy son of God in a moment when he invited Jesus into his life. And that was a reality for him. And we're set free from bondage as humans into the family of Christ every day. People are coming to the Lord. Globally, it's so fun. Hmm. Who's enthroned? So I think these are our options in this dilemma between the rule of tyranny and the rule of stewardship. I think our options are, I will be a slave of some kind to what I do, to what I have, to how people perceive me. 
or I will get a full revelation of who Jesus really is and recognize that I, as a son or as a daughter, am set free from the rat race of the rule of tyranny to live in the rule of stewardship. Because the one who's on the throne is the one wearing a crown of thorns who's pinned to his throne by nails because that's a God that would actually give of himself. Give of himself completely to the point of becoming human and dying on our behalf. So that we need go no distance in order for him to get to us. That's the gospel. And it ought to set us free. So if anyone is in the room and you haven't received a revelation of this goodness of Jesus, you haven't invited Jesus' blood to cleanse you and given your life to him, I just want to offer that invitation tonight. When the sermon is over and ministry time begins, I want you to come up. If you're feeling a burning in your heart and you want to give your life to the Lord, tonight is the night. And if you're like me and you gave your life to the Lord a long, long time ago and you still find yourself in situations of burnout, or I would say on the other side of the spectrum, maybe apathy, laziness, not taking responsibility for the things that you ought to then we have some practical stuff. I'm going to get into it. What our relationship with work can be as Christians. So unless your job is something, I think, inherently against the way of Christ, you don't have to change what you're doing. Maybe that's kind of a simple concept, but I feel like At least for me, I wasn't a serious Christian unless I was a missionary overseas, you know? Has anyone been tempted by those thoughts? Like, Lord, I want to give my life completely to you, but I also want to be a carpenter. And Jesus is like, I was a carpenter. That's a good idea. (laughs) So I thought that would land better. Um, You can be a teacher and practice this. You can be a doctor, a nurse. In fact, it's essential that that is the case. Mm. Let's read what Paul has to say in Colossians chapter 3. He's kind of talking in terms like clothing, like I'm supposed to take off an old self and put on a new self. So I like that image. If As I read this, you want to think of that. Like there's, there's an old like rule of tyranny, slavery, like I am a brick, brick layer kind of clothing that we're invited to take off and we're to put on the image of God. We'll see it here. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't reading yet. Could you go back? Thank you. <clears throat> Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the, you see it, image of the one who created him. 
a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. I think we could insert in there there's no distinction between white, black, Latino. There's no distinction between male or female. It says that in the scriptures elsewhere. Whatever divides you from the people that you have an inclination to judge in your flesh, there's no distinction between Republican and Democrat people who are deeply involved in politics and people who just can't care less. Christ is all and in all in this family. And that doesn't mean that you are going to stop being white or black or Latino or whatever we are. It's actually a gift that you are what you are. But our, our primary identity is the new self that is the image of God, remember? the ruler, the king or the queen, to be a co-creator with our gracious Father. Hmm. That's fun. So I want to suggest that there's a third way of getting out of this rat race between like workaholism and apathy, if there's a spectrum that exists between them. I don't think that the issue that the world is really facing is, I'm working too much, I just need to work less. Or I'm not working enough, I just need to work more. It's like transcending that spectrum into a sense of, who's on the throne of my life? And how is what I'm doing for the sake of the end of the kingdom that he has called me to be a part of building? The third way. Jesus is great with third ways. Uh, later in that same verse, Colossians, or in that same chapter, Colossians 3, it says this, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that, if the, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I got familiar with this passage when I was a janitor scrubbing toilets. I was like, ugh, this is terrible work. If you've ever done it, you know. Like ours, Jesus, I'm serving you. Do I believe that? I don't think I believe that. This is awful. I just don't want to be doing this. Anyone found themselves in a work environment where that was happening to you? Imagine what it was like to be a literal bricklayer in Egypt. You're building temples to gods you don't worship. That would have been awful. And I was like making places cleaner. I mean, that's a, that's a worthy cause. <laughs> like, thank you, Lord, for janitors, you know, custodians, whatever, whatever we're calling them these days. I think that that verse is interesting because Paul is, he's addressing slaves and he's addressing that they're set free from a slavery in one sense while still practicing slavery in another sense. So like, 
while maybe they are literally laying bricks, they are no longer brick layers because they're serving God. The Lord is their master. You see the paradigm shift there? It's a, it's a question of identity. So Jesus has this parable about workers in a vineyard that I think is really challenging, so I think it's fun to talk about it. This guy has a vineyard, and he's looking for workers, and he goes out first thing in the morning. I don't have words on there, so I'm just going to paraphrase it, but he goes out first thing in the morning to the marketplace, and he hires some workers, and he says, come on, I'll give you a full day's wage to come work in my vineyard. The guys say, great, I'll come along and work for you. The master goes out a couple hours later to the marketplace, hires a few more people. Out to the marketplace a couple hours later, hires a few more people. Even till 5 p.m. when the workday is getting close to finished, and he hires a few more people. And then when the work is done for the day, the master has his taskmaster pay all of them, starting with the last. Have you heard this story before? Oh, it's, I think it's so fun because it just cuts something in me. I'm like offended. <laughs> he starts with the last and says, give that guy a full day's wage. He gets a full day's wage. And the people who started first thing in the morning are like, oh, sweet. That guy got a full day's wage. I'm about to make bank. And then the taskmaster comes down and just gives a full day's wage to all of them. And somehow, even though they got what they had agreed on, they felt cheated. Comparison. Works righteousness. Those guys didn't labor in the hot sun like I did all day long. Are you kidding me? The master's like, is it not lawful for me to do what I want with my own land and my own laborers? So for me, I think this is requiring a similar paradigm shift the work that's being done in that vineyard is unto the kingdom. So whether I'm there for an hour or 12 hours, praise Jesus, I get to work alongside him in building this kingdom on earth. And in the end, we receive the reward of salvation. I don't know what heaven's going to look like, and there are other parables that seem to contradict this one. Where the guy stewards five talents and then he gets ten. And then the dude that stewarded two got like a few less. You know the one I'm talking about? So we should wrestle with these. But what I'm wanting to hash out here is there should be delight in your work because you're working unto the Lord. Not comparing yourself, feeling like, like you deserve more, like you're entitled, like you're defined even by what you do. So this is what I like to call kingdom stewardship. Kingdom enjoyment is going to be the next point. Kingdom stewardship. Sorry, I haven't been, I haven't been leading the, the slideshow very well. That's my bad. But I, I, if we can transition the way we think of work to kingdom stewardship, I think work is going to feel a lot healthier. Because then when you're really exhausted at the end of a super long day building handrails because you're a contractor and that's the kind of work you do, you're like, well, you know what? I'm exhausted, but it's unto the king. 
And I got to bring smiles to people's faces and safety to those stairways, and that's, that's work worth doing. Don't you think? Has anyone ever held a handrail while going down a stair? It's important stuff. Come on. Honestly, ever see a toilet that hasn't been cleaned? Man, I wish that Benjamin had been there to be the custodian for that toilet. That's what you could be saying. But at the end of the day, you're not defined by what you do. You're defined by whose you, who's you are, to whom you belong. And that will revolutionize the way you work. I'm convinced of it. This is part of the sanctification process. And the Lord has been very patient with me while I go through it. So I think this looks like, like stewarding your eighth grade classroom really well. Like stewarding your business really well with integrity and treating your customers with generosity. It's like practicing the way of Jesus and all the little nuances. Everything is spiritual. It looks like treating the classmates that you don't like like they're Jesus. Because that's what Jesus tells us to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And a lot of you in this room already do this way better than I do. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a family that feels like that. So I'm not necessarily saying you need this. This is just the word God gave me, so I'm trying to preach it. All right, so our relationship with work is essential. And I just challenge you that as you work, if you find yourself exhausted, maybe reframe what does this work mean to me? Who's on the throne in this situation? Who's on the throne of my paycheck? Who's on the throne of the pension that I'm really excited about? I don't know what the question is for you. And then also ask yourself about the other side of this coin that God instituted very intentionally, and that's rest. For those Egyptians who came out of brick, for those Israelites who came out of Egypt laying bricks, it would have felt like a drink of cool water in the desert for God to say, I'm commanding you to rest regularly because you are not God, I am. Even if your work isn't finished, stop and relax. He had to say that to the Israelites so many times. And we really neglect this one in our culture. Oh, I know Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But I think fulfillment, in the case of the Sabbath, kind of looks like abolition, because I work seven days a week. I'm preaching to myself, by the way. I'm such a hypocrite in this. Lord, help me. So if you don't take rest seriously, if you don't take boundaries seriously with your work, I'd encourage you to. Really, like sit down after this and look at your schedule and figure out what you can cut and how you can do it. Even when your work isn't done. Especially when your work isn't done, actually. God rested on the seventh day. Do you think he needed to? God, who needs nothing, chose to rest so that he could kick back in what I want to call kingdom enjoyment. So that's, I, I kind of want to reframe some of these words. Instead of work, kingdom stewardship. Instead of rest, kingdom enjoyment. 
It's not like I'm supposed to labor and labor into exhaustion and then take a day where I just sleep for 24 hours. (laughs) I've been there, though. That's tough. Kingdom enjoyment is like you get to drink your favorite cup of tea while you go on a nice walk on the green belt and look at the way the sun shines through the leaves and you're portaled into heaven all of a sudden and you think, wow, God, your world is so good. If I was in the office right now, I wouldn't have had that moment. The things that fill your cup, you're called to prioritize it at least once a week. Sabbath. Honestly, isn't that good news? Isn't that fun? Hmm. I'm excited about it. And it's inconvenient. And it's definitely cutting against the grain of the world. Someone very wise recently told me that if you cut against the grain, you will get splinters. So I'm sure that doing things like this intentionally will will hurt in some ways. But the life that it brings you in a remembrance of your identity is 100% worth it every time. So I'm going to lay my bricks down for a day to remind myself that I'm not a brick layer. I'm a son of God. And then on Monday, I can pick my brick back up and start building for the kingdom of God. And then when it's the end of the day, I go home and be with my family. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I skipped over some passages, but that's just fine. I'm going to conclude with this really fun story that I'm assuming basically everyone in the room has heard, but I'll say it just because it's delightful. In London in 1666... Tough year, just to begin with. (laughs) I had a lot of hope for 2020, the year of perfect vision. Dang it. (laughs) But 1666, you probably knew it was going to be a bad year, you know? London was burned almost completely to the ground that year. London, England. Anyone ever been to London? Nice. Anyone ever been to St. Paul's Cathedral? This is a drawing of what St. Paul's Cathedral looked like. It's just this gorgeous, gorgeous building that was brutally injured in the fire of 1666. And arguably the greatest architect in British history, a dude named Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild the cathedral. And while they were rebuilding... In 1671, supposedly, and it's, it's told a bunch of different ways, but this is the way I saw it. He's walking around the scaffolding, and he sees bricklayers laying bricks for this building. And he comes up to the first one who's stooped over, and he's putting brick after brick. And Christopher says, what are you doing, sir? And he says, I'm a bricklayer. I'm making money so I can feed my family. A worthy cause. He goes to the next guy. He's like hunched, but maybe not quite as low because he's been working a little faster. And Christopher says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm a builder and I'm building this wall. Different perspective. Okay. 
third guy, standing up pretty tall because he's been working faster yet. This is the guy that ends up becoming the leader of all the other bricklayers. And Christopher Wren asks him, what are you doing? And with eyes gleaming, the bricklayer looks at him and says, I am a cathedral builder. And I am building a house for the almighty God. Isn't that fun? Oh, Lord. And what is the difference between these three men that have the same job? One of them was a bricklayer in his heart. It's means to an end. But this one very intentionally building the kingdom. It's a worship practice for him to lay a brick. I'll just ask you, like, is it a worship practice for you to take that exam at NNU, if that's where you go? Or is it a worship practice for you to, like, I didn't come up with examples. I don't know. Put in another IV because you're a nurse and that's the kind of thing you do. To cut more hair at your hair salon. Is it a worship practice? Because I think in, in this kingdom stewardship lens, that's what we're invited into. And that's the kind of stuff where Jesus says, I came that they may have life and life abundant. The dude's eyes were gleaming because he was living in the abundant life. My work has purpose. I serve the almighty God. And he loves me and considers me a co-creator with him in making this kingdom. And I'm covered in his blood. And in that blood, I'm no longer a slave, but I'm a son of the living God. This God calls us children. So different than the relationship between Marduk and the Babylonians. So different. Do you see the contrast? It's like, it's blaring. That's why I thought it was fun to talk about. Hmm. So I, I just want to pray and open it up into ministry time. If anyone's felt a tug on their heart, maybe, um, maybe there's people in the room who just need a renovation of their sense of identity. My guess is there's some people in the room who need a revelation of the face of God to remember who is rightly on the throne. Jordan quotes this a lot, and for good reason. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. So if I believe that my God is a jealous, vengeful, violent God who created me to be his slave, life is going to look really different than if I believe in the Jesus Christ God who came to earth, put on flesh, dwelt among us, bore our sin and shame and suffering on our behalf and alongside us to invite us into his eternal life. There is no better story that's ever been told. And it should change everything for us. So we pray, Lord, with hearts and hands open that you would touch us how you want to touch us, that you would move us, Father, that you would inconvenience our schedules with healthy rhythms of rest. 
I pray, Lord, that you would convict me where I overwork and do the same for others. Teach us, Father, what life and life abundant really means. Thank you for being patient with us as we journey through this tiring life, just trying to figure out how to best live for your glory. We give ourselves to you fully, Father, trusting you with every brick that we lay. Yeah, we love you, and it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. So that said, if, if people would like to respond in any way, feel free to take a knee where you're at, come up to the front. Maybe I can get the ministry team to come up front and receive people who are looking for prayer. And I want to encourage you to not just let this be a sermon that feels nice and like changes the way that you're thinking in this moment, but let it be something that might actually change some practical stuff about the way that you live. Maybe God wants to give you revelation of that right now. Let's do that. Lord, that sounds like a good idea. Just close your eyes with me. Open your hands unless you're coming up to receive prayer. And just ask the Lord, how would you like me to renovate my rhythms of work and rest? We pray for practical advice, Lord. How would you like me to renovate my rhythms of work and rest? <laughs> 